Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masechet Yevamot, daf kuf yud chet, page 118. I just want to remind everybody of our upcoming siyum on July 10th. That's a week from today. Um, we have, that will be at 5 p.m. Israel time, 10 a.m. Eastern Seaboard. We have a special guest speaker, Rachel Stomel, who works full-time at the Center for Women's Justice and will be speaking to us about modern-day issues of Masachet Yevamot, or how they play out. Um, okay. Okay. As I said before, we have more Mishnah out today. The first Mishnah of this stuff actually, again, begins on the previous stuff. Um, they have not set that layout quite according to the way we have set up our recording schedule. Um, here we go. So, so in case you're waiting for this case, because you would expect that it would be a case, right? Two women come forward. They're both married to the same guy. One of them says, which, you know, back in the day of polygamy, that was, you know, certainly a reasonable thing. That's not the tricky part of this case. One says that the husband has died. The other says he did not die. Now, there's so many, again, so many soap operas we can construct from this, right? Um, okay. The one who says he's dead, she can get married. And she'll get her ketubah money the same way that she would if he were dead and lying before them, right? The one who said he didn't die, she can't get married and she can't take any ketubah money, meaning she can't, um, her, her, let's see, her outcome does not, um, cannot be dependent upon the other woman's claim when she herself is claiming something that is contradictory, right? She's established, she says herself, he didn't die. Well, then she has to live by that. One says he died, and the other one says he was killed. Meaning those are now, in either case, they're they're both talking about a man who has passed away, who has actually died, but the circumstances are different. And then what do you do with that, right? What are the implications of the differences right, between death and being killed? Rabbi Meir Omer Ho'il, Rabbi Meir says these two people are contradicting each other, meaning the very fact that they're that they agree on the fact that he is dead is irrelevant when the position that they're taking is fundamentally different from each other, and therefore, according to Rabbi Meir, they cannot marry. Um, which again is not the most lenient position you can imagine in this scenario. Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Shimon, modot kayam yinasu. And Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon take a more lenient position. And I feel like, I don't know, Yordana, this is one of those cases where I feel like Rabbi Mayer, for all of his brilliance, and there's no question that he was, um, I feel like his voice in this particular conversation is a much more youthful voice. And it's kind of that like straight up ivory tower, well, they're contradicting each other. So therefore, neither of them can get married. And Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon, I feel like, you know, like they're the the granddaddies of the conversation, so to speak, and they come come in. And I'm not saying that this is in the Mishnah. It's just my scenario in my head, right, where there's like a, they're there. We understand where you're coming from, young man, Rebbe Mayer. And again, again, I'm concocting all this backdrop, but they say specifically, since they both agree that he is not alive, they can get married. I Meaning even though they have a disagreement about how he died, they still are agreeing that he's not alive and therefore 
of course they should be free to go get married because the guy is not alive. So what's holding them? The fact that they contradict each other in the how of the death does not should not affect their ability or their right to be free, meaning free of the marriage. Edomer mate, ve'edomer lo mate. So the again, the mission goes on, right? A witness says he died, and a witness says he did not die. Now, here we're talking about um, third parties, right? Like not not any woman who's ma- who's married to the man, just random other people. One person says he died. Another person says he did not die. Isha omert mate, fi'isha omert lo mate. And then, you know, if one woman says he died and another woman said he did not die, that woman cannot marry. Um, we are, right, like the, the, the moment you've got contradictory testimony and none of the people giving that testimony have a vested interest in wishing that this man were alive, right, then they're not going to allow the, the death to be established on that contradictory testimony. It would have to be two witnesses say he died. And then we kind of use that as a reliability factor, even if, you know, it could be that they're lying. But but it's not that it doesn't matter. Of course it would matter if somebody's lying, but there are rules of, of witnesses. There's rules of testimony. And once those rules of testimony are are fulfilled, then unless you have something that comes to contradict uh, in a way, you know, that is new information or whatever that's going to be sound more reliable or for example you have adamzomamine which we'll talk about when we come to Makot in a long time right where you have people says those people don't even know that this guy died because they weren't ever there they were somewhere else completely then we would you know call into question that testimony but in this case the issue is that you have one witness against another witness and and that you can't it's not enough to say that the person that we can establish the testimony on that kind of contradictory thing, except for the case where it's the woman who herself was married to him, in which case all of the reasons that we gave all these, you know, daf after daf after daf about why it would be that a woman might be believed in the case of her own husband's death, they kick in. They're they're they and the test and that kind of testimony is indeed upheld. Right. Well, again, it gets into a question of motivation. If you could ascribe a motivation for her to want to have this happen, that's when it becomes problematic. Uh, so now we'll move on to the next Mishnah. So let's say a woman and her husband go overseas. And she comes back and says, my husband died. She's allowed to marry and can... But her wife is prohibited to remarry on her behalf. So this is like a little bit of an odd thing. In other words, she can testify on her behalf, but a co-wife, she can't release her with that single testimony. Let's say it was, let's say the rival wife was married to a, uh, was an, you know, was a, a Yisrael and she was married to a Kohen. She can continue to eat Truma. This is what Rabbi Tarpon says. Rabbi Akiva Omer. So Rabbi Akiva come and says, He says, this is not the way to spare someone from transgression. In other words, you know, even though according to Rabbi Tarfon, right, there's still a concern that she could be eating truma, you know, unlawfully, right? Because maybe he really is dead and she shouldn't be eating truma anymore. 
So Rabbi Akiva basically says, you know, you can't have it both ways. Either she should be, either it's prohibited for the rival wife to marry, and therefore she cannot, uh, you know, uh, 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 testify. Sorry, she cannot, she can't rely on this testimony of the of the other rival wife, and she can't remarry. It still should also be prohibited for her to speak to eat truma because maybe this woman was telling the truth. And so in other words, Rabbi Akiva is saying, we actually have to be machmer. We have to be stringent on both. Um, Amra, there's another case, right? A woman comes and says, my husband died and then my father-in-law died. Right? She can marry, get her ketubah, and it's prohibited for her mother-in-law to remarry because a woman cannot testify on behalf of her mother-in-law, Right? And again, Rabbi Tarfan comes and says, let's say uh, the mother-in-law uh, was the daughter of a Yisrael and she's married to a priest, she still could eat truma. Very similar to the other case. And Rabbi Akiva again comes and he says, that you know, it should be both of the both of these things should be a sword to her. So this is sort of basically giving two cases where Rabbi Akiva's reasoning or disagreement with Rabbi Tarfon is the same. And so what the Gemara is going to discuss is why do you need both of these cases? That's what the Gemara is going to do. Why did the mission need to preserve both of these cases? Um, and uh, so you can read that part of the Gemara. And then interestingly, the Gemara is going to say that actually. The halacha is like uh, is like Rabbi Tarfon. Um, so in a way, we're sort of being mekel wherever we can actually be a mekel. But it's a bothersome, you know, it, it's again, it's a little bit of a bothersome mishnah because like, why should this one woman really get stuck because she can't get released on that other woman's testimony? Right. Uh, yeah, I, the, what I said before, right? There's the rules of testimony. And then sometimes people kind of get into a very difficult place because of the rules of testimony. So the fact that we need a system is clear. The fact that that system can then still mess somebody up is unfortunately also clear. I'm going to move on to the next mission. Now we're on Amud Bet. So now we've got, this is an interesting discussion, right? We've got, it goes back to the mission that you've just read, Yodina, right? And the whole point of like, Rabbi Akiva's position here of, you know, what to avoid, right? You want to make sure that you don't get yourself into trouble. So now we've got, again, other cases that kind of, if this Mishnah had been attached to the other Mishnah, we would understand why. I, I prefer them separate, right? It makes it a, a smaller mouthful, but but um, but um, we would understand it. So here, Now, how it is that a man could be Mekadesh, a woman, how he could you know, betrothed her without knowing which of five he has betrothed is a tricky, you know, you want to talk about boundary pushing or exploring the parameters. On the other hand, there's probably some drunken spree where we would all understand it right away, right? That's the case. He doesn't know which of these five women he has betrothed. And every one of them, silly women, is saying, I'm the one you betrothed. He gives a get. To each one of them. And he says, and he, he gives that, he gives the get to each one of them. And then, you know, 
nobody has to worry whether she was a suffix. She should have been divorced when she wasn't divorced and she goes on to marry somebody else. So you want to make sure that her status is clear. And then he gives that ksuba money to the five of them. You know, presumably they're going to then, you know, see, theoretically they should divide it evenly. I don't know how that's going to work out so nicely. But this is Rabbi Tarfon's position. Rabbi Akiva Omer, this is not a way to prevent the whole Avera, the whole transgression to begin with. Meaning, one of those five is the person that he's married, he's betrothed, right? And so then it's possible, for example, that in dividing up that ketubah money, the person whom he really betrothed and then give a get to will not get the money that she will not receive, the money that she's truly entitled to. And so, like, you, and it ends up being like a mess um, in terms of when a motzi, you want he's trying to take the the least complicated path in terms of sin and take in terms of making sure that everybody's covered, and it doesn't quite work out that way. Gazal achat mechamisha ve'en yodeh me'ezu gazal kol achad omer oti gazal me'nech gzeila ben hamu mistalek tivi rebi tarfon. And we've got another case, a comparable case, right? where somebody stole money from one of five people. He's not sure which of the five. For some reason, this is a little bit more believable to me that you could, I'm just imagining, again, you could have a pickpocket and he's not sure which of those many people in the street who kind of bear resemblance to each other, or you could have people who look specifically alike, but whatever, right? The scenario of he's not sure which one he stole from, and everybody's saying, it was me, it was me. I'm the one who got you know ripped off, who got pickpocketed or whatever. And so then he, again, he has to give the money back. Presumably he has to pay KFL. He has to pay double in terms of the requirement for a thief to pay, to pay back what he stole and also pay this fine or whatever of, of a, the same value, uh, you know, another time over. And then the people are going to divide it amongst themselves. And that's Rabbi Tarfan's opinion. He's certainly consistent, right, in terms of the five women. And now we've got five uh, victims of theft, Meaning that's not true. It's one victim of a theft, and nobody's and everybody's claiming it that it's that that it's themselves. Again, this is not going to prevent anybody from an extra transgression, another sin. Because somebody is truly owed that money, so to get a fifth of that money back is not you're not covering yourself to make sure that you've done it right. The way you make sure you've done it right is you give that money to each one of them in full. And then you might be a lot poorer. You, the thief might be a lot poorer, but you have fulfilled in, you can be certain that you have fulfilled your obligation of paying the person back to the degree that you were obligated to pay, pay them back. You don't know which one needed it. Make sure you cover everybody. All right. We'll move on to the last mission. Cause this is getting uh, long here, but again, it's interesting to see sort of this continued malchokas between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfan. So now we have a case where a woman goes with her husband and her son overseas. So she says, my husband died and then my son died. We believe her. If she says my son died and then my husband died, we do not believe her. And therefore, the implication of that is she would not enter into Yibam. Because remember, if her son died first, that means her husband died childless. Um, so we make her do chalitza, though, because we're a little bit concerned she could have told the truth. 
but we do not, um, but we, she would not actually, uh, she would not actually answer, uh, you know, answer, she would not enter into to Yibam. Uh, let's say she went with her husband and they were childless together. And then she says, a son was born to me overseas. And then she says, my son died. And then my husband died. We actually would believe her. And that means she would actually be able uh, to enter into evil because basically but if she says my husband died and then my son died, we would not actually uh, believe her uh, and she actually wouldn't be exempt from Yibun. We actually, we worry, but we do worry that maybe what she said was correct. Let's say she says Yavam was born for me overseas, meaning when they left the country, her husband didn't, did not have a brother. And she claims in the meantime, a brother was born to her husband. Then she says, And then she says, my husband died and my Yavam died. Or or she says, my Yavam died and then my husband died. We, we believe her, right? And this is because when she left, there was no assumption she was going to have to do Yibam, right? We've seen this before that we sort of get the assumption people don't assume the worst case scenario. And so the idea that her husband and brother, that's just based on her testimony, but doesn't actually change anything. But let's say she, her husband, and her Yavam go overseas. Let's say she says, my husband died and then my yeah, and and not my Yavam, and then my and then my husband. We don't. We would not. She ain't Aisha ne'amenet lo me. She tenase below meita achotash itikanes lebeito. Be ain't Aisha ne'aman lo mar meita achi she yibeim ishto below meita ishto she yisa achotah. Because in these particular situations. There are certain situations where we're just not going to believe the testimony. And what are these? We don't, if she were to say, may Yavam died so that she could marry somebody else, right? If she says her sister died so that she could marry her sister's husband. And a man can't testify if he says, my brother died so he could enter into Yibam with his brother's wife. Or he says his wife died so that he could marry his wife's sisters. In other words, these types of testimony, there's a concern where... You know, maybe somebody had an ulterior motive and we don't totally uh, believe that. Uh, then the Gemara goes on to a little bit of discussion, um, uh, interestingly, about, uh, you know, uh, uh, about a get exactly, right? Where does a get actually, can the get stay in the place of the Yavam, right? Um, or maybe you shouldn't do that because that messes up the relationship between her and the Yavam. And again, some of the motivations there. Um, and, uh, and with that, they basically, they're going to close out the parak. I find it interesting that there's a presumption here, right? That people do not think of the worst case scenario. I know that's not the main case here at all, but I'm wondering who these people are because I feel like everybody I know is always worried about the worst case scenario and praying that it doesn't happen, of course, but like, it, it's just a really interesting 
refreshing perspective. Right. And then the end has sort of these things to say, like here, you know, Abaye Amar, I guess I'll just read the end here. Abaye said, one whose husband is as small as an ant, she still places her seat amongst noble women. In other words, women just consider themselves important just by virtue of being married. Right, a one whose husband is a wool comber, napsa, which is not considered to be a nice occupation, she still calls him to show off that she's married. Rav one whose husband doesn't need lenters for a pot. In other words, she's still happy she's married. She doesn't even mind if he doesn't give her real substantial food. And then finally, Tana is taught the happy with their marriages, they all commit adultery and attribute their children to their husbands. So in other words, this shows that even when there's uh, fighting between women or women may do something to break that marriage bond, they commit adultery. At the end of the day, they still would rather be married and therefore a get is not in their best interest. There's a lot to unpack here. We're going to get much more into this in Gittin. But the important point to take away is Chazal makes the assumption women want to be married under any circumstance. That's probably very nearly, much nearly right. any circumstance. Right. It's, but it's an economic statement. We're going to really unpack that when we get to Gedushin and Gittin. I do not think this is the truth today at all. I think it's really different today. I, I meaning, I, I think that people want to be today. married. I think right. it, people want to be married, but I think that you could, you know, would you rather be married in a loveless or even abusive situation? I feel like very few contemporary, except for the people who care more about external ap- appearances, right? Like not for anybody's own self, like, I don't want to say self-worth, just for their own good experience of life, you know? Yeah. But... Well- that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and...